Welcome to the New Books Network. The West is in trouble, believes Peter Newman, and as a result, we are looking ahead to the New World Disorder, the title of his book. Welcome to you. Hello. Let me just start with the point that in the West, uh, people live longer, uh, more comfortably. People all over the world want to live in the West. The West is doing as well as ever. Yes, to some extent that's true, of course, even though in the 1990s when the West had just won the Cold War, there was an incredible sense of optimism. There was a sense that the West would continue to expand, that we would be ruling forever, that our values would be the dominant values until the end of mankind, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama talked about. And now, only one generation later, we're in a situation where that doesn't seem so clear anymore. And so I think, you know, the West has also squandered a lot of its advantages since the 1990s. Let's go back to the Cold War then and that period. What helped the West win? What helped the West uh, have values that were admired all over the world? Yes, the, the, the Cold War, I think, was won because the West was just a much more attractive and effective and efficient system uh, than the communist East. And ultimately, I think as much as we're talking about in terms of defeating defeating the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union defeated itself. It had an economic system that couldn't provide for the sort of things that people were looking for. And ultimately, you know, people decided they wanted to be with the West rather than stay in the East. Yeah. And then there's a period between the the end of the Cold War and 9-11, isn't there? And you know, think everything changed with 9-11. So can you just take us through your perception of that, 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 you know, that period, Cold War to 9-11? Yeah. So that was a, a period of incredible optimism where the West thought that, you know, if we have defeated the Soviet Union, the mightiest opponent anyone could ever think of. If we have defeated Soviet Union and global communism, who else can ever compete with us? And that was, of course, encapsulated in the idea of the end of history when Francis Fukuyama argued, basically after defeating fascism in the 1940s and after defeating the Soviet Union and communism, there wouldn't be any more ideological enemies. And so people basically assumed that more or less, sooner or later, the values of the West, global capitalism, technology, individualism, democracy, that they would gradually spread. Of course, this would take time and there would be conflicts and there would be dictators trying to resist it. But ultimately, sooner or later, the whole world would be covered in Western values and the leadership of the West would not ever be questioned. Even China, people thought, would eventually become become a liberal, democratic, capitalist country. And so there was an incredible sense of optimism, also a sense that essentially nothing could ultimately challenge the West anymore. Yeah. And and then, then 9-11. Now, I guess the interesting question is whether 9-11 changed everything or whether the West's uh, internal contradictions and failings in terms of uh, its global dominance were apparent before 9-11, you know, that the seeds of its own destruction already lay there. Yeah, to some extent. And I'm, I'm writing about in one chapter how um, Western and especially Americans weren't able to even conceive of a determined ideological enemy 
like the jihadists of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda anymore. And that that failure of imagination, as it was then later called, actually um, is one of the, if not, if it is the ultimate explanation for how terrorism wasn't taken seriously before 9-11 as a threat, certainly not as the kind of threat that could ultimately, ultimately provide a strategic challenge to the United States. Yeah, but I mean, okay, it may have been underestimated, but was it underestimated as a jihadist ideology that, that did resonate in, in many parts of the world? Or did it succeed because it was an anti-colonialist movement in a way you know the whole jihadi thing was not just about religion it was about you know fighting the the, the colonialist leg- legacy for sure and uh, i think that a lot of people before 9-11 essentially and um, i've spoken to a lot of um, intelligence people who were looking at these things in the 1990s they basically said we looked at these movements and we saw them popping up in different countries across across the Middle East, and we thought of them as essentially local struggles. They were people rising up against local rulers, trying to resist them. Of course, they were also anti-Western, and of course, they were anti-American because America was present in a lot of places. But we never for one second believed that these people could challenge ultimately, the United States of America on its own turf. They were not seen as the kind of both ideological and physical challenge that could ever um, in in any way seriously uh, challenge the United States. And I think that was a, a degree of hubris that was also to some extent related to, to, to a failure to imagine that, that anyone could seriously challenge the West uh, ever again. Yeah, but they didn't really, did they? I mean, th- there was the 9-11 attack, which was absolutely, you know, it's cost a lot of lives. But, yeah, they couldn't repeat it. And, and the, the, the struggle is most active today, exactly like you say, in these local struggles against corrupt rulers and, uh, you know, governments that there's lots wrong with the governments that are being opposed. So maybe those people who said that in the 90s weren't so wrong. Yes, yes and no. And as I argue in my book, this underestimation of the threat actually led to an overreaction. Um, Because, as you rightly say, ultimately, with 20 years of hindsight, we can say these people were not really a serious threat to Western dominance. But on 9-11 and in the months and years after, they were certainly perceived as such. And that was a result of you know, perhaps the lack of understanding of any of these groups. And I think the reaction to 9-11 was basically to say, we have to double down. We now have to ultimately root out this evil. It's not supposed to be here. And we're going to close the one gap that still existed in bringing democracy and Western liberalism to the world. We're going to bring democracy and Western liberalism to the Middle East, the one area of the world other than China where it hadn't worked. And that was the, that was the agenda that then ultimately re- resulted, of course, in the Iraq war and other adventures that ultimately, of course, um, backfired uh, massively on the West. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question as to whether you think that Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the, the, the response to 9-11 in this uh, very militaristic response in Iraq and Afghanistan was a tactical error which has led to this undermining of Western power. But, you know, just a tactical error. Bush and Blair just messed it up. Or whether you think 
the loss, lack of confidence in the West now and the hostility to the West you know, goes deeper than Iraq and Afghanistan and would have happened even if they hadn't made that tactical error. I think it's a, it's a mix of both. And of course, both Afghanistan and Iraq are quite different in terms of, in terms of motivations. The Americans, for example, uh, didn't really see Afghanistan as, as central to this effort. Um, they had to go into Afghanistan because that's where Al-Qaeda happened to be at that point in time. But they actually quickly wanted to go out. It was the Europeans that persuaded the Americans to stay in Afghanistan beyond 2002 and try to stabilize the country, establish democracy there, etc., etc. Whereas in the case of Iraq, it was the Americans, and it was a particular faction within the American administration, the so-called neoconservatives, who actually really believed that this was key to transforming the entire region and that America was so powerful at this point in time that it could single-handedly transform the dynamics in an entire region, bring democracy to the Middle East and thereby remove the root cause, as they believed, of the 9-11 attacks. So in the case of Iraq, I do think the attacks um, were were responsible for empowering that faction within the American administration to carry out its plan. Because before 9-11, and I'm also showing that in my book, these people, the so-called neoconservatives, weren't actually that powerful within the administration. It was people like Colin Powell, who basically argued Saddam was in a box and we didn't really have to do much about it. That changed after 9-11. Yeah, I mean, this, this whole idea of exporting democracy is sort of fascinating because it was tried, wasn't it, in the immediate post-war period as, as Britain uh, divested itself of, of the empire and you know used to set up parliaments with maces and <laughs> all the symbols of parliament all over Africa and elsewhere and it you know and it failed and then somehow after 9/11 you know, it, it was attempted again and 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 failed again uh, it seems that you know the western confidence of uh, the, the immediate post-war period was matched by this second effort after 9/11 Yes, and there were also, of course, other efforts which were more successful and which some of the people after 9-11 thought of as models for what might happen in the Middle East. So they were always talking about Germany, of course, after the Second World War. They were talking about Japan. They were also, of course, talking about Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where democracy basically took root and really took root. But they were essentially European societies which shared with America and with Western Europe some of the kind of historical traditions of the Enlightenment that are also important for democracy to take root. And another factor that was very important in all of these societies was that, of course, the establishment of democracy was associated not with chaos, but it was associated with a growth in economic prosperity. You know, Germany is actually a very good example. There were two, two attempts to export democracy to Germany. The first one, after the end of the First World War, the Weimar Republic, was also an imposition of democracy on Germany, which failed because you had the Great Depression and people didn't associate democracy with economic prosperity. But the second effort, after the Second World War, it succeeded because in the 1950s, Germany, West Germany, economically grew. It was an economic miracle and people thought maybe democracy is not so bad after all. 
And uh, I think those lessons, those more nuanced lessons were ignored. But there's another layer of complexity to it, isn't there? Because you know, what you say about Germany makes total sense. And yet you also made the point earlier that there were these hopes that China would go this way. And you know, China's had a massive amount of uh, wealth generation in the last 20, 30 years. And I remember when I did my postgraduate degree, I can't remember his name, but there was a professor who'd come over from Eastern Europe. And he was basically saying, you know, once China gets wealth, there'll be a middle class and there'll be a democracy there. And he exactly. turned out to be totally wrong. Absolutely. And that was another illusion uh, that Western, all of Western policy towards China, essentially until 2015, was predicated upon the idea that the more prosperous China becomes, the more it grows in terms of its economic success, uh, the, more they the more they drink Starbucks, the more likely they are to become Americans. And all of that turned out to be wrong. I mean, there was a huge economic success in China. China, I mean, it's often not completely understood what's been happening in China of the past generation. Uh, three, four, five hundred million people have come out of poverty. There's a genuine middle class in China. Yet, as all of this has happened, China has not become more democratic. It has, in fact, become more totalitarian. And the reason is, I believe, because the Chinese leadership um, was very aware of this. They knew that the West was trying to kind of impose democracy by stealth or smuggle it into China. I mean, Bill Clinton once said, you know, once we give them the Internet, you know, they, 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 they have no chance. They will be infected by Western ideas. Chinese leadership listened to that. And every attempt to, to bring democracy was, of course, thwarted. They constructed their own internet. They constructed the great firewall of China. They isolated themselves from all of these tendencies and, in fact, became a very, not no longer a communist country, but a very nationalistic, um, capitalistic country. But when we consider, uh, you know, world disorder as, it, as it's developing, and we look at, you know, those examples you've given of Germany and China, uh, it is baffling as to what the conditions are that lead to uh, the establishment of these democratic models. Because, you know, you've made the point that in Europe we can all understand it. There's an Enlightenment tradition. Uh, you know, there's a deep cultural history there which would, you know, make us understand why at the end of the communist, end of the Cold War, end of the communist period, these countries rushed back into more Western modes of uh, you know, politics. But, you know, how come India has managed this you know, pretty democratic system, uh, whereas you know, many of its neighbours haven't. I mean, it, it, it is unclear why Western values take root in some places and not others. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't think the West has understood it itself. Um, and that's why we've seen so many mistakes um, in the past um, and over the past 30 years attempting to to export democracy, but then ultimately, ultimately failing. I think in the case of Afghanistan, for example, which I've dedicated an entire chapter to, there you can see that you know all the theories about why democracy takes hold, whether it's economic prosperity, whether it's a historical tradition, whether it's a, a homogenous population, all of these theories um, should have indicated that it would be really tough, if not impossible, to export democracy to, to, to that country. Yet that is the country 
where in fact not America, but European leaders decided we should try it. And we've invested 20 years uh, trying to stabilize that country, uh, create maybe not full democracy, but, but something similar to it. And of course, after 20 years, we had to give up. And so, so you know, whatever it is, we don't understand it ourselves. And I, I happen to believe that it would, be, it would, would have been much more useful, in fact, um, to just to, to lead by example, to have good democratic uh, governments and good democratic societies. And whoever comes to us and says, look, your, your country seems to be functioning quite well. What can we learn from it? We should offer a, our advice rather than trying to impose or export it. And that is, of course, exactly to some extent what China is doing. China is going to places like Africa, in, in, to places in Africa and to places across Asia. It offers economic aid. And it then says, look, if you want to be like us, we can offer you some lessons. Feel free to take them. And some of them take them. And that is how China has essentially expanded a lot of its influence, not in terms of bringing democracy, but exporting its own version of, of um, development and and authoritarianism yeah without ever firing a shot absolutely and it's particularly problematic i think and i'm i'm you know dedicating a whole chapter to that it's particularly problematic because because of course china is now sitting on all the resources that we would need for that green revolution that we in the west like to talk about for that green revolution uh, to happen. So if you look at where where all the natural resources are based that are needed for, for uh, building electrical cars, for building the batteries, um, they are all based in countries that have very close relationships with China, or in fact, they are in China itself. Um, so in order to make that green revolution happen, in fact, we are already dependent on China without it even having properly started. Now, you're t you've been talking about some of the sort of cultural factors, political factors, historical factors. There's also the whole issue of, of economics and globalization and the, and the 2008 crash. So to what extent is Western weakness today a result of that economic policy uh, of globalization and, you know, the, the indebtedness of, of uh, Western democracies? Sure. I, I, I do think that there are two events that signal... If you want the uh, the 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 change the, the 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 change of course, if you want, uh, first the Iraq War, which was basically the biggest strategic mistake that America ever made, that had a huge in, in addition to the economic cost, had a huge opportunity cost. America had to spend 10, 15 years looking at provinces in Iraq that it should have spent you know, looking at Asia and looking at the coming competition with China. And then the second event was, of course, uh, the global financial crisis, 2007-8, which basically was, again, an exaggeration of the Western model, which led the West into this crisis and which it needed years to recover from. And in China, for example, Chinese economists and Chinese leadership uh, basically at that point, and they said that explicitly, basically at that point said American global leadership is vulnerable. Essentially, it is from that point onwards uh, that they started making 
claims for global leadership, whereas before they had been quite modest about it and they said, oh, we have to create win-win, we have to create partnership. But since 2008, 9, 10, since the consequences of that global financial crisis became obvious, China has actually become more self-assertive, also exporting its model across the world. You've been talking about the export of democracy and its, uh, you know, the, the Western values in the international context, the, the, yeah, the, 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 after 9-11 and that challenge, Afghanistan, Iraq and all that, we then end up with a situation where Western values aren't even valued in the West. Trump, Orban, Brexit. What's that bit of the story? So basically I'm arguing that uh, in many respects um, we've to some extent used our values against ourselves and that we're now in a situation where our societies are actually quite vulnerable and quite unstable. I mean, the most evident example is the current situation in the United States of America. The U.S. is actually economically doing quite well and is also, in some respects, leading the world in terms of technological innovation. But the political system is so in, uh, so unstable, it's so vulnerable, and it's so polarized. And we're seeing that, of course, also in some countries um, in Western Europe. And to some extent, that's, that's our own fault. Um, for example, we were completely naive about the internet. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about the internet in the 1990s and how everyone was hoping it would essentially bring the world together, we would become more educated, we would become friends across cultures, and no one anticipated how it could actually be used as a tool by extremists. No one anticipated how it would polarize the discourse within Western societies, and no one anticipated that, in fact, our very opponents, the, the opponents of our values, like Russia, Iran, China, would use these tools against ourselves, how they would manipulate the discourse within Western societies using the internet to essentially destabilize the very system that, the, that we are trying to export. Um, and so I think none of what you just described in terms of Brexit, in terms of Trump, in terms of the rise of far-right populists in, in Western Europe, none of this uh, is an accident. It is actually, it has been empowered, it has been powered and facilitated by our own very systems. Yeah, well, I mean, the internet is definitely part of the story, isn't it? But so too, surely, is is the... Yeah, the rust, the lack of social solidarity exposed by, by Rust Belt existence. You know, whether it's America or Northern England or parts of Europe, uh, you know, the, the the deep fissures in our society which these anti-democratic politicians have been able to exploit is is you know an inherent weakness. Is it in 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 Western politics? Absolutely. I think people were naive about globalization. Um, so th there were people like Martin Wolf, for example, who's now changed his mind. So, but, but at the time, he was one of the most fervent advocates um, of, of, of economic globalization, saying, you know, everyone benefits, everyone will profit from it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Michael Friedman in the United States, the New York Times columnists, being really cheerleaders of that. But the truth is, of course, that globalization um, has been beneficial to, to countries in the global south, 
tremendously to China, of course. It's also been overall beneficial to countries like the United States or to the UK, but not evenly so. It has destroyed uh, low-paid jobs in Western societies. It has destroyed a lot of manufacturing in Western societies. It's also created a lot of new good jobs in technology, for example, but often not in the same places and not for the same people. So if you are someone who is 50 years old and you live in the Rust Belt or in the north of England um, or in parts of the west of Western Germany, you're definitely not a winner of globalization, even if your society as a whole has benefited. And these uneven consequences of globalization, they were not articulated enough. Basically, people were just told everyone's going to be a winner. And ultimately, of course, people like Trump or people like the Brexiteers or people that like the right-wing populists, they picked up the people who thought they had lost from that development. So as you look ahead, I mean, do you, do you, do you think the lib- you know, old fashioned you know, Western liberals who uh, the, the sort of people who, who who thought it was going very well in the West in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, before the end of the Cold War, even in then, and then that period after the Cold War up to 9-11 or 2008, wherever you see the key breakpoints. Uh, do you think the people who, who, who still hanker after that time are doomed or do you think the liberals can make a comeback? <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can turn back the clock. I, I, I think that's uh, always an illusion to say, you know, we can go back uh, in time. I don't think we can totally break, for example, our relationship with China. We've become too dependent on China uh, in many different respects. Um, so the clocks cannot be turned back. But I do think we need to um, revive um, a sort of um, tradition in, in the West, where we are more proactive, more pragmatic, but also more honest to ourselves. The very, I mean, at very basis, the insight that not everyone in the world sees us as we like to see ourselves is something that we should have learned of the past 20 years. I mean, going to places like Iraq, not everyone saw the Americans as liberators. Not everyone sees the West as principled and values-based. And we should be aware, to, uh, be aware of that. Um, and we should go into countries where China has been very active in Africa and in Asia that the West has completely neglected. And we should be making them offers. And we should be, we should be more co- competitive across the world again without necessarily imposing our value system. Okay, less militaristic and more humble. Absolutely. Humility is a very important word, uh, which um, I think uh, we have not acted according to over the past of the past 25 years. But I, I just wonder how convincing that is as an answer. You know, when you've got uh, many places in the world, most places in the world who consider uh, the West to be arrogant, um, you know, in moral decline, uh, so internally weak and yeah, having benefited from uh, exporting these values, at least to the extent that uh, people took notice of the human rights agenda and all the rest of it coming from the West, and that that era is just over, and people, you know, do not want Western economic dominance. So, the, you know, the lesson the West has to learn is to be poorer compared to the rest of the world. 
Well, I think, I mean, that would be a very uh, pessimistic conclusion to reach, to be honest. Um, however, I do think, uh, I, I do think there are some positive lessons that can be learned. So, for example, if you look at the Marshall Plan after World War II, which, you know, everyone thinks was a great success, it basically consolidates Western Europe as, as Western countries, democracies, capitalistic countries, market economies. And that succeeded because that was a program where interests and values aligned. So it was clearly in the American interest to spread its system to Western Europe. But Western European countries also benefited from it. It was something that was very useful for both parties involved. Why can't we have something like that now for countries where currently China is very present? But we can make an offer. In fact, if you go to Africa, you will find that a lot of these countries, a lot of these governments even, a lot of these societies don't particularly like the Chinese way of doing things. But the Chinese, they say, are the only ones who are here. So if we make them an offer and if we say, of course, yes, we have done wrong on you in the past, but now we want to make you a genuine offer because it benefits us, but we think it will also benefit you. We're trying to be as humble and as honest as possible with you. I do think some of them might find that attractive, but we haven't even tried for the past 20 years in many places. Okay, so here's my problem with that. I mean, I think it's completely right to say that, um, you know, people who've experienced Chinese dominance don't like it. People who've experienced jihadi government don't like it. You know, all these alternative models, uh, people experience them and suddenly, uh, yeah, they they don't like it. But uh, the West is unwilling to do what it needs to do to persuade people to reorientate themselves to the West because it is not prepared to, let's say, allow free trade with African farmers. You know, it is not prepared to make any economic sacrifice in order to achieve the kind of goals that you're talking about. And and that does keep many, many countries in poverty and it is resented. No, no I, I think you're absolutely right. However, I do think that there has been, uh, with increasing competition from China, more and more people are realizing uh, that we can't carry on as before. And there have been ideas about big big projects. There's much more willingness to go to places in Africa and Asia and to make them new and more honest offers. I I don't think um, it will ever lead to the complete opening of, for example, European agricultural markets. Of course not, because that would that would have domestic consequences here. But I think we can do a lot more. And by doing a lot more, I mean a lot more than nothing, which is essentially what the West has been doing in a lot of places for the past uh, generation. So I haven't lost complete hope. But as I say in the book, um, you know, we have to be more honest to ourselves as well. And that means recognizing everything you've just said um, and, and recognizing that in a lot of, in a lot of places... Um, Europe or the West is being resented for things that we don't even realize. Yeah, well, I mean, just last point. I mean, just I mean, you know, I think I am being rather pessimistic, and and certainly more than you are. But it it, it does seem to me that you know what you're talking about, yeah, Marshall plans and and reaching out and big projects, you know, fine. But when 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 these Western economies are running debts of over a hundred percent of GDP. You know, the room for manoeuvre for that kind of thing, it just isn't what it used to be. And, and you know, you can look at it 
from the point of view of, I don't know, an African government or East Asian government. It's, it's not just the hypocrisy of Western powers that they're objecting to. It's also the reality of these, these, these countries are bust. Yes, many, many Western countries are in, in economic difficulties. But of course, the calculation is that, um, you know, ultimately, um, if, if we don't do anything now, then uh, the economic difficulties and de- decline will accelerate even more. And I do think there's now an interest. For example, if you take Asia, for example, uh, I think there's a great um, competition now for countries like India. Um, India is part of the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, at the same time, it is a strategic competitor of China. It has a lot of conflicts with China. Who is India going to side with? How can we convince India to be more on the West side than to be on China's side? I, I do think that this is still up for grabs. And I, I do think we would be losing, including not only strategic, but economic opportunities if we were not acting now. And this is kind of what I'm trying to hope people, uh, hope to convince people of with, with this book. It's a valiant plea. And, uh, and we all hope you're right. <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Well, I'm, thank I'm, you, very much. you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic too. I, that's why the title of the book, the subtitle is How the West is Destroying Itself. If we don't do anything, then that will happen. Your predictions will all come true. Um, and that's why I'm building on the best Western traditions of self-correction, which is one good thing about the West. It is that that you know we we can we actually do have to some extent free speech. We can criticize our own behavior and we can correct course. And this book is an attempt to help that process of correction. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking us through your yeah, very interesting book. And it's you know it's a very rich area of discussion. Matters an awful lot, and it's it's great to have someone who deals with the big picture, you know, rather than just narrowing in on some sort of uh, particular topic. So we're very grateful to you. Thank you very much, Owen.